All right, let's uh, bow our word, uh, heads in a word of prayer. Loving Father, we thank you for bringing you in um, this morning, Lord, into your house. You brought us with a purpose, Lord. Let that purpose be revealed in our hearts. And um, as we listen to your word, let these words sink deep in and help us, Lord, to go out of here as transformed people desiring to do your will and uh, to walk according to your commands. I pray for myself as I speak, Lord, let there be words of uh, grace in me. And let me rightly divide your words so that, Lord, these words speak not only to the congregation, but to myself also. And, Lord, we let the power of the Holy Spirit um, reside within each and every one of us as we listen to your truth and enable us to uh, be obedient to what we hear. You take charge of this entire service and help us to bring glory and honor to your name and your name alone. Give you thanks and praise and ask us all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I've been uh, going through the book of uh, Titus uh, for the past uh, few months, and uh, today, uh, the last time around, I started a sermon that I titled as uh, Be Holy, For I Am Holy, and it's taken from uh, the letter um, that Paul writes to Titus, and specifically chapter 2. Um, today, uh, I will go into the second part of the series, so let, uh, for, for those who have your, the church Bibles, let's open the Bibles to page 1700. And we'll read uh, chapter 2 together. Chapter 2 of Titus, it says, verse 1, You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Verse 6, similarly encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the God, glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things that you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. This is the word of the Lord that we'll be uh, looking at this morning. Um, just to recap, last time around, uh, when, when I talked about uh, uh, Titus and the ministry that was entrusted to him, he was uh, left on the island of Crete, and his, um, uh, he was left over there to build the church up, because in the church, uh, the church at Crete was plagued by very many false teachers, and... Um, and, and um, the population of uh, that island was uh, characterized as people who had a reputation of always being always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. That was the kind of setting in which uh, Paul uh, is asking Titus to um, uh, build that church up and uh, to, uh, commission, uh, to faithfully uh, uh, fulfill his commission. Paul gives him the set of instructions. And we looked at these instructions in uh, verse uh, chapter 1 and also in chapter 2. Um, so if we look at uh, cha chapter 1 itself, Paul gives uh, the, uh, the purpose of his own ministry. He tells uh, uh, Titus about the godly characteristics or standards that were required for the elders so that the elders could be appointed with those kind of standards. And he also talks about uh, the, the false teachers, the false prophets, and he gives a portrait of how these, uh, prophet, these teachers were looking like, and he wants them to stay on guard against these people. Um, he then moves on from uh, the leadership and now moves to the 
general congregation in chapter 2. And if you look at chapter 2 itself from verses 1 to 10, he talks uh, and he gives a set of living standards for the older men, older women, uh, younger men, younger women, and also the slaves. And in, uh, from verses 11 to 15 that we just read, he gives a theological background of why he gives these instructions. So with that uh, preamble, uh, the last time around, I focused from verses 1 through 6 uh, as part of the message of be holy for I am holy. And he gives instructions to the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and endurance. To the older women, he says to be reverent in the way they lived, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. And then to the younger women, he, she, he gives the instructions to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands. Now, verses 6 to 10, uh, we will move into the area of uh, the younger men and the slaves, and that's what we are going to focus upon. Just to recap from last time, I mentioned these instructions are only valid for those who believe in Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. If there's a non-believer, these words have really no meaning. As a matter of fact, it is unpalatable to, these, uh, to, to an unbeliever. If you look at these uh, instructions, as I said last time around, the worldview will label them as patriarchal, misogynistic, or strongly prejudiced against women racist, intolerant, oppressive, anachronistic or old-fashioned. That is the kind of instructions that this world looks at and says this is useless, these are meaningless. I'm not going to follow them. But to the believer, these are words of God. This is pure milk, honey, that comes from the mouth of God to his children. So when you will listen to these instructions, do not approach these instructions in a legalistic manner. Approach these instructions because they are instructions coming from your father. As children of God, you are required to express your love to your father by being obedient to his instructions, to his word. Jesus himself says, if you love me, you will follow my commands. When we follow these commands, we become like the father. We take on his nature. We become like him, holy in nature. But if we approach these in a legalistic manner, we become like the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees followed the law, but the law became a burden not only to themselves, but to those around, him, around them. And that is what we have got to avoid. Understand the law, apply the instructions because we love God, not in a legalistic manner, so that we don't become a burden to people. Remember, God has designed the believer to be holy because he is holy. The refrain of the Bible, be holy for I am holy, is the command we are asked to obey. So this morning, remember, holiness is the intent of these instructions and holiness is a standard that, the, that God wants us to obey and follow. So turning to verse 6. The address uh, that Paul makes over here is to the younger men. Last time around, I pegged the age of the older men at 60 and above. So obviously the younger men have to be 60 and below. So what is the lower age of this younger men, right? Uh, I'm placing it around 20 years because if you look at the Old Testament, if you look at Exodus, if you look at Numbers, uh, generally the age of um, uh, at which when the, the young people were conscripted into the army was 20 years of age. And even in the consensus, when God asks uh, people, uh, the men to be numbered, he starts from 20 years and above. So generally the young men over here are between 20 and 60. This age is the age when men are at their prime. They are, uh, they are full of energy. They are vital, they are virile, they have strong desires, they are aggressive, uh, they, they have dreams, they are healthy, they have ambitions, they are more and more uh, vigorous in their activities and in their daily life. As you become old, it becomes worse, so uh, all the bones creak and all, but not for the young people, right? They, 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 want, they are go-getters, they, they want to do 
things. And it is this age, unfortunately, that walks away from God the most. Because they are so consumed by the world and their ambitions and their desires to grow that God becomes secondary to them. And it is to this group of people that Paul is giving this instruction. And the instruction he is giving right off the bat is, similarly encourage the young men to be self-controlled. The word encourage over here is not a casual statement that Paul is making. In the New Testament, whenever the word encourage is used, it is always used in the context of uh, teaching in terms of counsel, in terms of direction, in terms of guiding, in terms of rebuke, in terms of exhortation, in terms of admonishment. This word is a very strong word. It is not a casual statement that Paul is making. He is making a strong command over here and saying, young men, you have to be self-controlled. Think about it. Self-control in people who have these worldly ambitions, desires, who are burning with energy. Paul pulls them back and says, apply self-control. The theme of self-control permeates in this letter that Paul has just written to Titus in the previous verses, the previous chapters also. And it continues not only in the book of Titus, but in all of his epistles that he has written to various groups of people. He talks about self-control again and again. And it is not a theme or a subject that is only confined to Paul, but Peter also repeats it again and again. Why self-control? Self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Yet Paul emphasizes the need to exercise self-control. Why does Paul put such a premium on, on self-control? Simply put, self-control is an attribute that comes from the inside. It does not ex require an external policing or anything of that nature. It is inbuilt within us, fruit of the Holy Spirit, and it is very closely linked to self-discipline. In Webster, self-control is defined as restraint exercise over one's own impulses, emotions, or desires. So why do we want to say, show self-control? That is the foundational question. Why do we want to have self-control? Simplistic answer is it will prevent us from sinning. But I thought I'd spend a little more time this morning and talk about self-control and why do we want to have self-control and try to answer that. The thoughts that I have used to answer over here are taken from the book by John MacArthur, uh, and the book is titled Art of Self-Discipline. It's a simple primer. If you get an opportunity, please read it. It's a very good book. If we understand the foundational requirements of why we want to have self-control, we will desire to do that more and more. I will go through four of them very quickly and uh, try to explain to you as to why we, we need self-control in our lives. So the first one, we want to have self-control in order to keep the covenant of our salvation. Remember your point of salvation when we came to Christ or when we all came to Christ, we turned from our sin, we asked forgiveness for our sins, repented from it, and we fully trusted in the forgiveness offered to us through Christ for his finished work on the cross. And at that point of time, we were saved from our sin, from eternal wrath and destruction, and we were delivered into a holy uh, life, an eternal life in heaven. Our declaration at the point of salvation also demanded us to recognize the Lordship of Christ, that he was over all us in everything. We were fully subject and submitted to him in every aspect of our lives. Our lives had to be holy. Our lives had to be devoid of sin. This is the covenant, and also our lives had to be fully surrendered to service to the Lord. This is the covenant that we establish at the point of our salvation. When we sin, we walk away from that covenant. The more we sin, the more we are saying that we are not fully bound by that covenant, and that is not what God wants us to do. The pledge or the covenant that we have established requires and demands us to have, live holy and pure lives, 
sinless lives. Self-control prevents us from sinning. And when we are not sinning, we are basically maintaining the integrity of that covenant. We are saying, God, we are still your children. We want to continue to be your children. And we are wanting to live in the light of what you have set for us. We want to live in the perspective of heaven and the eternal life ahead of us, not in the day of, of the time or the moment. Self-control prevents us from breaking that covenant and helps maintain the integrity of that covenant. That should be our foremost understanding of why we want to have self-control, is that we have pledged a covenant with God, a holy God, and we should not do anything to break that covenant. Though God, as we sang the song before, he will maintain us to the end, but we also have to make that effort. That effort. It cannot be um, that we live in la-la land and not do anything on our end. The second one is we want to have self-control because we recognize that sin, all sin is a violation of a relationship. When we were saved, we, we were set into a unique relationship with God, the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That unique relationship was sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit and established us as true children of God. If we are saying we are true children of God, we should behave and act like our Father. When we sin, we behave and act like Satan, and we are not like our Father. Our, our whole demeanor, our whole mannerism is like the devil. That is not what we are required. As true children of God, we have to copy and be like our father. In, if we look at it from a worldly standpoint, in terms of a father-son relationship, what shatters the heart of a father is not that his son broke a rule. It is that his son disdained a meaningful, loving relationship. Remember the Garden of Eden. God created Adam in his own image, a son with whom he communed on a daily basis, a son whom he loved, a relationship that was heavenly built. Yet when Adam sinned, did not exercise self-control, that relationship was broken. Think how much it must have grieved God. We all know the consequences. We all know what happened in Garden of Eden. We all know the curses that were brought down on mankind and all humanity and even the created order. That relationship was violated because Adam sinned. I'm talking right now in, in, a, in a human standpoint. Consider this. What if Adam had exercised self-control and not sinned and not eaten that fruit, forbidden fruit? What would our world be today? Would I be here standing and preaching? Would, I have, uh, would we all have been living in a world of sin and destruction? No. You see, had he exercised that self-control at that point of time, history would have been different today. But I was reminded this morning, God had already ordained it from eternity past. So it had, come, it had to come to pass. But I'm just talking from a worldly standpoint, right? So you, you can see how important self-control is. It honors and values our relationship with our Heavenly Father, with our God. That is what self-control does. And that is why self-control is so important. Next, we want to have self-control to have control over our imagination. For any believer, imagination is the battleground for every sinful activity. You'll ask me how so, why? It is important to understand and have a biblical understanding of what imagination is about. Last week, as we were preached from Genesis 6, we were reminded after the fall of man, wickedness in the world increased, and God saw that everything man thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. A thought that is repeated in Genesis 8 also. 
Sin is all around us. Evil is all around us. There is no doubt about it. But it is in the mind or the imagination where we take sin and what is around us and we build it to a point where it becomes an action. We play it out and it becomes an actual deed. The fact that we are living in a fallen world does not make us sinners. But the fact that we take that sin and internalize it, play it out in our mind, and then actualize it, that makes it a sin. This concept and this thought is uh, clearly expounded in James 1, 14 and 15. I'm going to read James 1, 14 and 15. It says, But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Imagination takes the sinful situation, the image, the thought, the concept or action that is in the world, brings it internally into us. And in, then imagine, imagination builds, tends to build upon it, internalize it, and it eventually breeds and produces a sinful action. It is in imagination where covetousness, jealousy, lust, anger, revenge, and host of other sins are activated. Our imagination does it. Think about it. You are angry with someone because someone um, offended you. You start building that anger in your mind. And in your mind, you start working out, thinking out, what actions can I do to take revenge? And it comes to a point where that comes out as an action, and you may even murder that person, for all I know. But that is what it does. It is imagination where it keeps on building. And you, um, in Hindi, we say mirch masala. That means you add all the spices to it, and it becomes into a, an actual event. That is what imagination does, right? And if we apply self-control to our imagination, which is a battleground, we can control a lot of sinful actions. It is an, so imagination is an invisible arena, right? Remember, nobody else can see what is in my mind right now. But self-control is also in my mind and internal to me. I know what I'm seeing and I can prevent it by applying self-control. That is what self-control does. It is one of the fruit of the spirit, but it has to be exercised to overcome the battle that we have with imagination. Others, will, we will go down the path of where we'll let imagination rule in our being and we will let it become into an action which is sinful and will cause grief, grief to God. Finally, we want to have uh, self-control because we want to focus on a noble cause outside ourselves. Today's a fast-paced world, right? <clears throat> and even self-absorbed culture that we have around us. We are all striving to satisfy ourselves. That, that, that is our ultimate goal. We want the best life for us today. We are not focused on the things of God. Yet as believers, God wants us to focus on those things that are from above. He wants us to focus on things that will bring glory to his name, that will honor the person of Jesus Christ, that will say that we are Christians, that we are the lights of this world, yet we are so focused upon ourselves. Consider an athlete. What is the pursuit of an athlete? If the pursuit of an athlete is to get that gold medal. And to get, attain that gold medal, the athlete exercises self-control in every area of his life. The self-control is exercised in a manner where he is disciplined, in order to, in what he eats, in what he, uh, how he sleeps, in the uh, things that he exercises or uh, participates in activities. So he's focused, he's self-controlled for a worldly or a, um, for a gold medal that is uh, perishable. Yet we have a co cause and a goal that is far beyond that of an athlete. We need to be striving towards that noble goal or noble cause. 
Self-control takes us away from the things that are worldly and focuses us on things that are eternal. And it helps us to turn our attention to that which is true, that what is noble, that what is right, what is pure, what is lovely, what is admirable, and anything that is excellent and praiseworthy. That is what self-control does. It removes us from centering ourselves on ourselves to what is really meaningful, that is God-centered. With self-control, a person would lay aside worldly pursuits and focus on godly pursuits. That is what self-control does. So, in summary, self-control is required to keep the covenant of our salvation. It is required because we recognize that all sin is a violation of our relationship with the Holy God, because we want to have control over our imagination, and finally, we want to work for a cause that is more noble than what we are currently focused on. I've got to drink water. My mouth dries up very quickly. So, self-control is absolutely essential to avoid all sinful work, right? We, we've kind of established that. We know what is the reason. This discipline is also recognized in the secular world as something very important. Uh, and uh, emphasis is placed on self-control even in the, in the, by the psychologists of this world today. In the, in the 1960s, a psychologist by the name of Walter Michel began an experiment in a preschool on the Stanford University campus. Children, generally four years of old age, were told that they could have a single treat, such as a marshmallow, right now. However, if they waited while the experimenter ran an errand, they could have two marshmallows. Some preschoolers grabbed the marshmallow immediately, but others waited for the bigger prize of the two marshmallows. They had to wait only 20 minutes for the two marshmallows. But to the four-year-old, the wait time of about 20 minutes seemed like eternity. To sustain themselves in their struggle, they covered their eyes so they wouldn't see the temptation. They rested their heads on the arms. They talked to themselves. They sang, even tried to sleep so that they were not tempted. Eventually, these children got the two marshmallow reward. But the story does not end here. The interesting part of this exper experiment came in the follow-up when these children turned teenagers. It says the children who as four-year-olds had been able to wait for the two marshmallows were as adolescents more socially competent, self-assertive, and better able to cope with life's frustration. In contrast, the kids who grabbed the one marshmallow were, as adolescents, more likely to be stubborn, indecisive, and stressed. This is what the worldly psychologist says about self-control. Self-control is truly important, it's truly essential for a believer in every facet and every aspect of the life. Now, we look at self-control and we look at the things around us. We look at things as bigger things, little things. We need to have... Uh, Self-control in bigger things like, say, adultery or murder. But what about the little things? The battle starts in the little things. If we have exercise self-control in the little things, the bigger things will follow. I'm going to go through a series of examples right now so that you understand from a practical standpoint what it means. But I'll leave it to you to connect the dots over here. I'll leave it open-ended because everybody uh, deals with situations differently. And how they exercise self-control is also very individual. So I'm not going to prescribe anything over here. I'll leave it to you to connect the dots. For example, if we do not want to commit murder, then how does self-control play out when someone cuts us off on the highway? When our food is burnt? When the restaurant server is ignoring us? When our best friend fails to invite us to their grand party? If we do not want to divorce, how does self-control look when we are provoked by our spouse? When the other half fails to pick up? When the toothpaste tube cap is left open or squeezed from the center? I know it's 
sounds silly, but those are things that leads on, right? When nagging is a norm. If you do not want to commit adultery, how does self-control play out when vulgarity is seen on TV, on a TV show? When an attractive, skimply dressed person is walking past us? When we are all alone with the opposite sex in the office coffee room? Questions to ask, right? If you do not want to walk, if you do not want to walk away from our faith, how does self-control play out when ill health prevails? It is just consuming. We are sick every day. When a co-worker gets a promotion, when a high-profile project comes our way and has potential of consuming all our time, when the unbelieving neighbor gets all the blessings. How does it, how does self-control play out when these things happen? If you do not want to be greedy, how does self-control play out when the last piece of cheesecake is calling out our name? When the mega millions lottery is tugging at the purse strings, when the stock market is keeping us awake at night? See, these are all practical things. We face them on a daily basis. These little things are what eventually leads us to the bigger things. We exercise self-control in these little things, the bigger things will follow. We will not murder, we will not commit adultery, we will not divorce, we will not do so many things, right? It is important to recognize that we have to be diligent in exercising self-control in every area of our life. And it is utterly imperative for every believer that self-control be this hallmark of holiness and the essence of our everyday life. So, so with that said, for a young man to help to have self-control in the prime of his life, in the life when he's the most energetic, is so important because it will help him not to walk away from God. It will help him to be focused upon God and live a holy life. So with that said, let's move on to verse 7. Uh, verse 7, it says, In everything set them an example by doing what is good. So Paul moves his attention to Titus itself over here. Titus, as we know, was a young man. He was the preacher and he was the pastor of the church at Crete. And Paul instructs him to be an example. An example so that other young men could follow him. An example in every aspect of his life so that when he's giving an exhortation or an instruction to others, people will look at his life and say, yes, I want to follow him because he's doing exactly what he's saying. His words and his actions are, are completely congruent. They are not diverse. They are the same. That kind of an example is what Paul is instructing Titus to have. If we are living the life or if Titus is living the life that he is required to live, he can be a strong example. He can be a true force in, in encouraging the younger men. If he is not doing that, he will just become a hypocrite. And hypocrisy is the easiest way to lose people. If people see that, if people saw that Titus was not following the ways of righteousness, they would not follow his instruction. They would not be encouraged by him. They would not be urged by him. So if you look at verse 7, on the surface of it, it seems like Titus is to set an example in his teaching and in his conduct. But I kind of struggled with this verse a little bit in trying to understand the depths of it. And uh, because if you look at the teaching, right, Paul has already given the instruction to Titus earlier on in this chapter in verse 1. He says, uh, your teaching should be sound and uh, it should be uh, appropriate to uh, write theology or doctrine. Now, why is Paul bringing this back again? I looked at uh, other translations over here so that I could get a better understanding of what this verse really means. And I like the NLT translation and also the same translation is in the NASP and other Bibles also. It kind of gives a little more depth of what this uh, statement means, and I'd like to read that to you. Uh, verses 7 and 8 says, And you yourselves must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. 
Let everything you do reflect the integrity and seriousness of your teaching. Teach the truth so that your teaching can be criticized. So if you see the second part of this verse, it says, let everything you do reflect the integrity and seriousness of your teaching. You can see the link over here. That there is a, there's a link between his conduct and his teaching. They both go intricately together. So if his teaching is sound, his conduct will be good. And if his conduct is good, it has to be matching with the teaching. They cannot go, uh, they, they are not apart. So Paul is saying that your teaching has to have integrity. It has to be, have honesty. It has to be truthfulness. And it should be exhibited in your conduct, in your works, in your good works. Good works will follow sound teaching. They don't go apart. If, if, if his teaching is incorrect, his works will be wrong. If his works are wrong, his teaching will also be wrong. So they both go together hand in hand. And that is what Paul is trying to tell him is, your works should match your teaching. And his teaching had to be sound. It had to be truthful. It had to be righteous. And it had to be in perfect accord with the word of God. That is the instruction that uh, Paul is giving Titus over here. And also he wants uh, Titus to show seriousness in his, in his word, right? And his teaching, meaning that whatever he's teaching has not to be done casually, right? It has to be reflected in his good works, in his conduct. They both have to be matched together. And eventually he says that uh, you, you do that why would you do that? You would do that because no one can condemn you. If the teaching and the works are matched and if they are, doing, if they are going side by side, completely in line with each other, no one can lay a claim or bad mouthers. They cannot say you're a hypocrite. They cannot say you're doing the wrong thing. They cannot... Uh, condemn us in any manner but if we if those things are not going side by side not going parallel people will condemn us people will say you are a hypocrite you are not doing what you are saying you are you're supposed to do and the second part of it says so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing to say about us obedience and holiness is the biggest stopper to people's words, to people's insults. Nothing silences the enemy like a godly life. Nothing silences the people of this world when you are holy. No one can say anything bad about you if you are living a holy life. Remember Daniel, not a single word said against him. Because he lived a holy life. They could not find a problem with him. The only problem they found in him was because he prayed to his God. Right? That is the kind of holiness our father requires. And that is the kind of holiness that was demanded of Timothy. A life that was to be led according to God's word. According to what he taught which was correct. So... As Paul lays out these instructions, these instructions are not only for Titus, but they are also for the younger men. Remember, Titus is a young man. He's laying the groundwork and the foundation and an example for other young men. The other young men of that island were also called to live lives of holiness in accordance and in obedience to the word of God. Unfortunately, in today's day and age, even the secular world recognizes that our young people are moving more and more away from the word of God. They are leading lives that are desiring to please the world. In the words of one of the uh, secular authors who comments on the current state of evangelism in the United States says that young evangelicals have become more tolerant of activities once viewed as worldly or immoral, such as smoking, using marijuana, as a matter of marijuana is now legalized, so it's open to everyone. Attending R-rated movies and premarital sex. He further observes that the traditional meaning of worldliness has lost its relevance for the coming generation of evangelicals. Unfortunately, that is the state of our young people today. 
if you look at the average church goer and the amount of people who are working for the Lord, you'll find more young women than young men. The young men are more focused on the worldly careers, worldly pursuits. It's a sad state of affair which has to be changed. If young men want to be meaningful, if the world wants to see the light of God and the light of the gospel shining in this world, young women, young men have to step up. Young men have to step up and take on the character of God, of their loving father. They have to lead holy lives. They have to be fully aligned with God's word and be obedient to God's word. Otherwise, we will be a life of shambles and we will be a life that is wasted and the gospel will never be proclaimed in its entirety. A holy life is a testimony that no one can refute. That is the instruction that Paul gives to the young men and to the young men of this congregation. Remember, 20 to 60. So if you're 60, you're a young man. Uh, younger than 60, you're a young man. And this is applicable to each and every one of us, right? And remember, our witnessing is effective only and only when we have holy lives. So now the attention changes from young men and moves to the slaves. In verses 9 and 10, Paul turns his attention to the slaves and he provides some instructions um, to this people group. So Paul over here is primarily addressing uh, the, the slaves who had been converted to Christianity. And um, the, he's, um, he recognizes that slavery is an integral part of the society of that time. As a matter of fact, the Roman Empire was bereft with slavery and uh, slaves at, at various uh, uh, levels of the society. They were owned by, um, by a master or one owner. Um, they were required to accomplish various tasks. As a matter of fact, the entire labor, most of the labor force in the Roman Empire comprised of slaves. These slaves did all kind of work. They were household uh, keep, housekeepers. Uh, they were um, farmers. They were traders. They were in, involved in the arts. They were also involved in medicine, right? So, so the slave, the, the whole slave uh, industry or the slave, uh, uh, the slaves of that time, they were an integral part of the society. Um, the, the, their fates were controlled by their master. And the master could be a Christian, non-Christian, could be extremely kind, could be extremely cruel, right? You had all these extremities over there. And it is to this set of slaves that Paul is uh, giving instructions. Paul is not trying to uh, provide over here uh, uh, an understanding of the morality of slavery, but rather he's focusing on the behavior of the slaves, which was more important as Christians to show that they were holy and pure. They were reflecting the image of Christ despite their menial and subservient situation. He's not focusing on the morality of slavery over here, but it's addressed elsewhere in, in, in scripture, but he's focusing on the behavior. At the end of the day, it is the behavior of a person that changes the perception of how people look at Christ. It is not the, uh, the, the order of the office of slavery in itself. So Paul gives very four very simple instructions. Do not require a lot of understanding behind it. If you look at the instructions, the first instruction is to be subject to the masters in everything. The second instruction is to try to please them. The third instruction is not to talk back to them. The fourth instruction is not to steal from them. I'm going to go through these very four very quickly because they are really very simple to understand and I don't think they require much explanation. So the, the, the first one is be subject to the masters in everything. Paul, right off the bat, he lays the ground rule of the behavior of a slave. He calls the slave to be subject to their and obedient to their master. See over here, Paul is not linking their action to the character of the master. The master could be a, an extreme taskmaster. He could be extremely cruel. Yet Paul is saying, you still have to be subservient and submitted to that master. Ephesians 6, 5 
gives a little bit more um, detail on the ad attitude of the subjection of the slave to the master. In Ephesians 6.5, it states that the slave must obey the master with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Do you see the link over there? The behavior is you obey the master just the same way as you would obey Christ. You want to obey your master, you have to be obedient to the master just as you would be obedient to Christ. You wouldn't be obedient to Christ as in a lip service manner, but it would come from the sincerity of your heart. That's exactly what Paul is asking the saves to do. Your subjection or your submission to the master should be from your heart, with a sincere heart. It should not be with a sullen attitude, not be with a mere lip service, but it should be from the heart and it should be irrespective of how the master is treating you. He could have been beating that slave every day, yet still that slave had to be subject to the master. Sad, but that is what, it was, what was required. I believe that the only exception to this rule would uh, come when, uh, when the uh, order or the command would be in direct opposition to God's word. In that case, I think the slave would uh, not be required to be subject to the masters and would uh, face more consequences. But at the end of the day, the command is very clear. The second one is to try to please them. Think about it. A master is beating you up and you're still trying to please that master. Very difficult, right? I, I wouldn't be able to do that. But, the, but Paul's instruction is very clear. The man or the woman, slave, had to please the master in everything. Not necessarily that the master or would um, be pleased by their action. As a matter of fact, might have even hated that slave even more. Yet, the effort had to be there from the slave all of the time to please the master. And the effort was not based upon how the master would eventually treat the slave. Maybe the master's attitude may have changed towards the slave after he's being pleased, or maybe not. But that is not the um, guiding factor over here. The guiding factor over here is the effort by the slave was to constantly please the master in every area of the life. So, difficult, but it was there. Next one is not to talk back to them. How easy it must have been to the slave to retaliate, to want to talk back. Every time he's being put down, every time he's being um, a derogatory remark was passed towards him or being asked to do something that was completely um, untenable or very difficult to do, yet Paul is still saying you have to be subject to that master and not talk back to them. And this all comes back to the fact that God had ordained that placement of that master in the life of that slave. God had put him there. And by trying not to talk back to them, the slave is saying that, yes, I recognize the authority that has been placed to me. Even though it may seem difficult right now, I still have to comply with the order of that master, and I still cannot retaliate or talk back. It's, it's difficult, but it had to be done. Finally, it says not to steal from them. Think about the slave of that day coming home to a house where children are hungry, where they don't have even the clothes, and the slave who had full control over the uh, master's household, how easy it must have been to just pick up a stale loaf of bread or a cloth or something like that and go home and give it to his children. He would have been fully justified in providing for his family, yet Paul makes it very clear to the slave, you cannot do that. You cannot do that. No matter what your family condition or home condition is, you are not going to steal. Steal from your, no matter what the temptation is, stealing is not allowed. And the slave was supposed to show the highest integrity over here. So these instructions, difficult, very difficult. Think about it. Think about the society. Think about the situation of the slaves. But to the Christian slave, Paul is saying, you have to stand out. You have to be people of the highest fidelity. You have to be people 
who are trustworthy. You have to be people who are pleasing. You have to be people who are amenable. You cannot be just like the rest of the world or the, like the rest of the slaves who are constantly striving to fight against their masters, who are constantly striving for a revolution. He's not calling for a revolution, but he's calling over here for submission. And why was he calling that? To, why was he calling the slaves to do that? That's the beauty of verse 8. He says, uh, or verse 10, he says, so that uh, you can be fully trusted and in every way that they will make the teaching about our God and our Savior attractive. So two reasons, that they could be fully trusted. The first one, the master could leave his entire home, his entire wealth in the hands of uh, the slave and never lose sleep. That was the kind of thing uh, that would result when the slave obeyed in the manner and the instruction that Paul has given. He would, could be fully trusted. And the second part is, the, the, by behaving this way, the, the slave would make the message of Christ more attractive to the world. The gospel would have true impact. Now, when people looked at them, they would look at their internal character and look at the way they behave, and they would recognize the beauty of the gospel, how it had changed their lives, and how every aspect of their life would bring glory, even uh, glory to God, yet even though they were facing so many difficulties. A submitted life, uh, a life that is pleasing, a life that is respectful, a life that is honest and loyal, is what would change the Roman world. And we know from history, many Roman elites and masters came to know Christ through the behavior of the slaves. As a matter of fact, uh, the Emperor Julian in the year 300 and 365, somewhere around there, he was trying to find the reason why people were, why more and more of the Romans were converting to Christianity and why weren't they following the emperor worship and the emperor, uh, the, the, the worship of gods and idols. And one of the things that he found out and which really was a stark difference is he found that these Christian slaves and the Christians of that time were not only showing love to their own brothers and sisters, but they were showing love towards the, to the Roman people themselves. They were caring for the Roman people who needed that help, who needed uh, succor or any other um, benefits. They were providing, they were showing that love. That is what a submitted and a changed life does. And that is what the slaves changed the entire history of Rome, the entire history of that world. They were the ones who really made an impact and brought the gospel to a point where it became attractive to the people. So we don't have slaves today, right? Yet we are working in this world and many of the activities that we're doing are similar to what the slaves did at that time. Our call in the workforce is still to follow the same instruction that Paul gave to these slaves. Think about it. How many of us would be in the work environment and be subject to our master or subject to our boss? This morning you would think I'm mad by even suggesting to be subject to your boss. You'll say, you don't know my boss. My boss is a tyrant, he's really wicked, he's evil. I cannot be subject to him. Yet, Paul is saying, you have got to be subject to that, to that man who is placed upon you. Many of, our, of us in the workforce, we simply do not want to be under the authority of anybody. We want to have it our own way. And to have our own way, we'll do anything. We'll fight for it, we'll talk back, we'll argue, we'll revolt. We'll cut corners, we'll destroy people along the way. We, we do not want to be subject or submitted to anyone. We are not there for pleasing others. We are there for what pleases us. The first time we are hurt, we'll make sure that everybody in the office knows that we are hurt. And we will not try to do anything to please others, right? That, that, that's not where our goal is. Think about it. We think that the copy machine and the papers are our own property. We'll take that home every day. We never think about twice about stealing. 
we want to do our work with minimal effort. But every time we do, do that, we are stealing from our, from our bosses, from our office, by not giving 100% over there. We spend more time gossiping. We spend more time doing our own personal stuff while we are at work. We are taking away things from God. Yet, if we were subject to our bosses, if we did things to please others, if we were not stealing from our, from our, uh, in, our in our offices, in our work, if we were trying to do what is right, don't you think it would have a bigger impact in your office than speaking over there and saying that I'm a Christian and I want to give you a message of Christ and then do all the things against what Paul's instructions are? Don't you think the people would laugh at you and say, why do I want to follow this Christ and who is this Christ? The instructions are very clear and we can make a monumental change, a monumental revolution by acting the way Paul has instructed us to do. If we followed Paul's instruction, the gospel message would be a true light. It would change many people, just like it did in the Roman Empire. It will be that source for even today's day and age. So, in conclusion, today is December 31st. Tomorrow is New Year's. We all make resolutions. As a matter of fact, um, the top New Year resolutions for 2022 were exercise more, eat healthier, lose weight, spend more time with family and friends, live more economically, and lend, spend less time on social media. Each of these resolutions are repeated again and again and again. This was the same thing in 2021, same thing in 2022. 20 and so on. And it will be the same next year also, right? They are noble causes. I'm not saying they are bad. They are good resolutions. But from an eternal perspective, they may not be of much value. First Timothy 4.8 instructs us and says, For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and life to come. Again, Godliness has value for all things. That is what we should recognize. These instructions are given to us this morning to live holy lives. The instructions are given to the young men, to the young women, to the old men, to the old women, to the slaves. These instructions were given so that we could be holy just our God is holy. Remember, the church will not rise above mediocrity if we continue to live unholy lives, if we continue to live as the world lives, if we want to make a difference, if the church wants to make a difference, we have to pursue holiness. Let our resolution for this year and also for the rest of our life be to live holy lives, to live according to the instructions given by Paul, not only in this uh, epistle, but in all the epistles, in the Gospels, in, in, um, in all the Old Testament books, God's word has given us the instructions of life. God's word has given us the instruction for holiness. Let our resolution for the new year be that the rest of our lives be lived in obedience to these instructions. A church will never rise above the holiness of their leaders and the holiness of their congregation. We want this church to rise and we want to be people recognize that uh, we are godly. We have to rise above the mediocrity that we are in right now and live according to the principles set by Paul so that we will glorify God, we will live as evangelistic tools and we'll be fitted for eternal glory. Let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you, Lord for taking care of us and bringing us together this morning. It is by your goodness and by your grace, Lord, that we were able to hear your word also. Draw us close to you and help us, Lord, to go out with a renewed zeal and desire to live holy lives. Protect us, Lord, from areas where we are uh, failing. And, Lord, let self-control be the hallmark of every individual over here. 
help us to exercise it on a daily basis and uh, look at it in every area of our lives. Take care of us and give us wisdom. As a soul in the name of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.